0: welcome to another episode of the u.s china salon podcast now known as the world salon podcast i'm your host charlie our guest today is professor stephen cohen an expert on environmental policy and sustainability he is the director of the research program on sustainability policy and management at columbia university's earth institute in this episode we'll be discussing pressing environmental challenges in both the us and china including climate change renewable energy and preserving biodiversity. We'll explore potential policy responses and the role of technological innovation in enabling sustainability. Professor Cohen has extensive experience straddling government, business, and environmental issues. He has authored numerous publications on public administration, corporate sustainability, and environmental topics. So technological innovations have been the primary driver of cultural, economic, and political changes over the past two centuries. Um, you know, creating both positive impacts and negative ones, you know, positive ones being connectivity, negative ones being you know, misinformation, and technology will continue to be the dominant catalyst shaping society in the future. Now, in your recent article, Technology, Culture, Economics, and Politics, published on Columbia's Climate School, you stated that technological development is far more important than public policy in determining our energy future. So tell us about that and walk us through your thesis.
1: Well, if you think about it, um when we first developed the uh, electrical grid, which is something Thomas Edison did, um, you know, public policy didn't enable it or have anything to do with it. I mean, at a certain point, um, we decided to make electric utilities uh, a public utility because it's a natural monopoly. But um, it was basically the creativity of he and his colleagues that brought about the electrical grid and his business savvy that extended it. So in this century, and really for for, for many centuries, it's really been technological innovation that drives changes. It, you know, if you hadn't invented air conditioning, you couldn't live in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you hadn't invented uh, the, uh, the train, we would be living in smaller spaces. And so, and uh, inventions like the green revolution in agriculture enabled us to grow our population uh, because our food supply has grown. So, it's, so, technological innovation, human ingenuity has dramatically changed where we live, how we live, uh, and uh, and basically our quality of life. I mean, the uh, development of uh, machines uh, has replaced uh, animal labor. The use of animal labor replaced human labor, and so uh, we see that our lifestyles are dramatically different today than they were centuries ago, and that frees us up to do other things besides worrying about food, clothing, and shelter.
0: Mm. I think technology definitely plays a pivotal role, you know, in shaping our lives, and it's made our lives much more better you know, with the advent of technology since the Industrial Revolution. But one thing that's unique about climate change that you've mentioned in your article, which is, you know, America's political economy is better equipped to monetize the benefits of new technologies than regulate and mitigate the costs they bring. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's sort of, that there's sort of a dichotomy there because while these technologies like the car, like the train, mm-hmm. you know, they've improved our, our standards of living, you know, incrementally, I mean, but by, by such a significant level, they've also degraded our, you know, our climate. And so how do you think technology will will, will evolve to, to amend that? Do you think it will evolve to amend it, or do you think it will make it worse without regulation?
1: Well, I'm not saying you, you don't need regulation, in fact, you do need regulation. But most of the regulations simply require new technologies. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, if you look at, at the United States since the creation of the EPA in 1970, the air and water in America is cleaner. Um, the air is cleaner because we have applied technology to, the, to automobiles with the catalytic converter to power plants with stack scrubbers and with fuel switching and so we have much more uh, electrical generation today than we had in 1970 we have many more cars and those are the two primary sources of, of uh, air pollution mm-hmm. but we pollute a lot less mm-hmm. and with the development of the electric vehicle we'll pollute even less mm-hmm. and so uh, Government has a role in creating standards for uh, what pollution is and making sure there's less of it. Uh, And I think the same thing is true with greenhouse gases. Uh, Greenhouse gases are regulated under the Clean Air Act in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so you do need a regulatory framework, but that's simply the start. What is really needed is the development of the technology that allows uh, it to be implemented because people are not going to accept uh, less travel, uh, less use of electricity, they're going to want more of those things. So mm-hmm. uh, you, have to, you have to have rules, but the rules are just the beginning of the process. And I think the idea that somehow public policy on its own can dictate uh, how people live is just simply doesn't bear any resemblance to reality.
0: I see. So where do you think that line is drawn between you know, dictating how people live and being able to have effective regulations that, that curb you know, the degradation of the environment? You know, where do you think that line should be drawn, and how do you think it's determined?
1: Well, I think what, what you need is you need rules, but you also need incentives. And I think if, if what you try to do is punish people uh, for misbehavior, then what you end up with is people figuring out ways around your punishment. Uh, On the other hand, if you provide positive incentives to behave the right way, people will do it. So, you know, one example in public, you know, of public policy in the United States, uh, before World War II, this was a country of renters. Most people didn't own homes. Uh, The government invented the guaranteed mortgage. Uh, They made mortgage interest and property tax uh, tax deductible on your income tax. And within 20 years, uh, America became a nation of owners rather than renters. And, that, and what happened was we created positive incentives for people to, to change their behavior. Same thing is true with renewable energy. Uh, to the extent that you require people to uh, decarbonize by taxing carbon, you create a disincentive. So people then paying more for energy, and they're going to resist it politically. If, on the other hand, you subsidized renewable energy, help people pay for solar cells and for batteries, help people pay for electric cars, mm-hmm. uh, then people will do it. And uh, after a while, it gains momentum, and the technology gets better, the prices get cheaper with mass production. And so you get to the same place you would have gotten to with punishment, uh, but you get there uh, faster, frankly. And, and I think punishment as a public policy, tends to not work.
0: I see. So, what's your favorite example um, of a punishment, and favorite example of an incentive currently, you know, being enacted either in the United States or China or in the European Union that you think is very not effective and very effective?
1: Well, you know, I mean, in in China, the uh, the one-child policy uh, has seen uh, has has had massive negative impacts in the you know. 20, 30 years later and is now recognized as a policy failure. Uh, Was China overpopulated? Uh, The idea of overpopulation was based on a misconception about uh, what's called a demographic transition. Uh, What we know now, and apparently didn't know when this policy was made, was that uh, you get to a certain level of economic consumption uh, and you get to a certain level of urbanization, and children are no longer an economic asset, but they're an economic liability. So my grandfather uh, grew up uh, on a farm in Russia, was one of a dozen children. Uh, he was his par- going to be his parents' social security and labor force on the farm. And so the more children, the better, okay? Mm-hmm. But then you... F- go into my generation i have two daughters they're wonderful i love them very much but uh, they they haven't brought me any wealth they've cost me wealth and so the best form of birth control we've ever invented is the cost of education in the cost of raising children and so that wasn't really understood so the the punishment of you know saying you can only have one child clearly backfired and was unnecessary You know, on the other hand, had you created a tax system that made it, uh, that provided disincentives for having big families, uh, that might have ended up generating revenue and had the same impact without the draconian uh, impact of that policy. So that's one side. Uh, In the United States, uh, the, most of the regulatory regimes that have been invented have had uh, gradual compliance schemes so if I say to a company you have to do a B and C I might give them 10 years to comply because I don't want them to close down and shut down their business so I, I guess the point is that when you apply rules you have to apply them thinking about what are the indirect impacts of those rules in uh, you know that and it's complicated because sometimes you don't know what they're going to be On the other hand when you think about Incentives for technology, uh, same kind of thing can happen. You can have a technology that ends up with many indirect negative impacts, and so you have to pay attention uh, to those interventions by public policy. The market is the same way. You know, the market is no no smarter than government. Uh, you know, it takes uh, you know a lot of modesty, and I think a certain amount of incremental. Movement so that you can see what the side effects are going to be before you plow ahead.
0: Mm. I think that's really interesting. Um, I think a few sessions ago we had a session with Scott Roselle from Stanford, and we actually spoke extensively about China's education system and how they're reforming the education in order to help boost the the population in the coming coming years. Mm-hmm. So that that's very interesting. But in terms of China, how do you think they're doing in terms of climate change? You know, in terms of transitioning to electrical vehicles to solar. How do you think their policy structure or framework is? Do you think it's
1: more of an incentives-focused policy or a um, consequences? Well, I, I'm not sure they're doing either. I mean, I think they're spending enormous amounts of money uh, because of the, you know, the strong central government and its ability to make massive investment, whether it's the you know, investments around the world in infrastructure uh, or investments at home. So, uh, China has two problems. One is there's still, you know, it's a, it's a highly developed country, but it's also a developing country. So, there's really, in a sense, two Chinas, you know. And so, in the part of, of China that's developed, uh, you do see, uh, you know, some terrific investments in transportation, uh, electrical transmission, lots of wind power, solar power. But the need for more energy quickly is also continuing to require burning fossil fuels and other kind, and particularly coal. Uh, the problem with coal <laughs> uh, in China really is the, it's a little bit like what the problem we have with Los Angeles. So one of the reasons we had so much smog in Los Angeles is you have, the way the, the winds blow, they blow off the ocean and then they hit the mountains. And so they trapped the automobile exhaust in the valley that Los Angeles sits in. Uh, Beijing has some of the same problem. Hmm. It's downwind from where all the coal is burning.
0: Uh, I'm actually from Beijing. Okay, so, so you know, so you have there. some
1: idea yeah. of how dirty uh, the air became, and so the Chinese government shut down many of the coal-burning power plants in that air basin uh, because China, uh, you know, in Beijing in particular, <laughs> I mean, in the United uh, is is the center of Chinese civilization. It's the business center, the government center, and the media center. In the United States, Washington is, is a government center, New York is a financial center, and Los Angeles is a media center. So we spread it out a little bit. But every elite in China, at some point, finds, them, finds their way to Beijing. And so uh, in some ways, it's a little bit like Los Angeles because of the, the geography of it, and that, I think, forced it, uh, some of the decarbonization, particularly moving away from coal uh, nearby, because the impact was just massive. But I, I think in the case of China, in the case of the United States, we are beginning to see uh, the transition to a decarbonized economy. And I think it will continue because of some of the basics of the problem of fossil fuel. You know, I've written about this too. So fossil fuels, you have to dig it out of the ground, and that pollutes and costs money. Mm-hmm. Then you've got to ship it somewhere, and that pollutes and costs money. Then you've got to burn it, and that pollutes and costs money. And the amount of fossil fuels on the planet are not growing, uh, we're using them. And so they're getting more expensive to get out of the ground because they're harder to get to, okay. So we know the cost curve, well actually the cost curve with fossil fuels has been pretty flat, um, but at some point it will go up uh, because supply will go down. Or it may not because we might just leave it in the ground. But solar energy um, is the cost curve is going down. And the cost curve is going down because the sun's free. Uh, It will outlast our species, so for all practical purposes, it's infinite. And the technology of absorbing it and storing solar energy is getting cheaper and cheaper. It's a little bit like Moore's law was for computers, Mm -hmm. you know, where, you know the technology keeps getting less expensive and the capacity keeps growing so when i was in graduate school i used a computer that was twice the size of this room and it had less computing power than this thing has mm-hmm. and so we're seeing the same kind of technological innovation with renewable energy and so the market will eventually drive fossil fuels from the marketplace in fact I anticipate 20 or 30 years from now, people say, why did we burn that stuff? It's so much more useful in plastic and in chemicals. You know, burning it, what, what, what were we thinking of? So I think that uh, there's going to be a decarbonization over 20 or 30 years. The question is, how can we accelerate it so that we can, get a, uh, we can attack the, the global warming problem? Uh, it's so baked into the atmosphere at this point that uh, ultimately we're going to have to do some geoengineering and suck some of the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, some of the greenhouse gases, because uh, we've really already altered uh, the planet's uh, greenhouse. So I think that will happen, but I think that it's the technological innovations that will make the change. Uh, Public policy can push it along, can make it happen faster.
0: I see. Well, in terms of that, I have two questions. The first one, in your article, you also mentioned the Heritage Foundation and certain conservative groups, right? They they're very pro fossil fuel, very pro oil. How do you see them evolving in the next five to ten years, as you know, um, clean energy becomes cheaper and cheaper?
1: Well, they've made something ideological, uh, and it's kind of idiotic, frankly. I mean, I, I think that that uh, it's it's almost as if. They see progressives moving in one direction, so they reflexively have to move in the other direction. Although interestingly, if you look at the polling data, younger conservatives uh, are are almost as worried about uh, global warming as younger progressives are, uh, not to the same level, but certainly much more concerned about it than their elders who are conserv- in the conservative movement. So I think that uh, I see this as a kind of blip. I don't think it's a long-term issue. Uh, Because I think that, uh, you know, global warming is not a theory. I mean, some of the the idea that's... And the human contribution to global warming is scientific fact. So I, I just don't think you can argue with facts. And, I mean, they do, but I think in the long run, it's hard to sustain it.
0: I see, I see. I think that makes a lot of sense and my second question regarding that was a lot of these you know green or climate focused projects right for example a clear example is electrical vehicles to sustain a network of electrical vehicles you have to have a lot of charging stations now some argue that to build up this infrastructural framework policy actually plays a very big deal it needs to be subsidized to a certain degree for it to make economic sense for companies so where do you see the interplay between between these factors
1: well first of all most charging stations in america are going to be in people's driveways because this is a a nation of suburban homes where people have the, they don't need a charging station that's public the second thing that's happening and walmart's one of the first companies that's figured this out is uh... You know, if you look at where are most american gas stations they're usually attached to convenience stores and the idea is while you're filling up with gas you go inside and you go buy you know, a hot dog or a mm. bottle of Coke or something, OK? Um, Walmart's figured out it takes longer to charge a car. So while you're charging, go in and buy some stuff. And I think the idea of uh, the business model of using people's need to be in a certain place to then go and do some consuming and some shopping is the one that's going to succeed. I think all those uh, convenience stores are going to put in, you know, in addition to having gas pumps, they're going to have charging stations because it will attract customers who will then go into their stores. So I think most of the, I mean, you do need public infrastructure, you need a little bit of, of incentive to get it started. But most of the charging stations that are in the United States now are, uh, have been set up by private corporations, uh, whether it's Tesla or Walmart, Anel, the Italian energy company is setting up a network of charging stations in the United States. So I, th- I think it's a mix. Uh, we have some students in the sustainability management program who have started a uh, company called Volt Post, and their model is to put charging stations on street lights, and, uh, and they've got some, uh, some startup money to begin that business. So I think we're going to see lots of creativity and lots of use of... The, the changing behavior of electric charging of vehicles uh, as a way of changing uh, people's consuming behavior.
0: Mm. That's actually really interesting, though, the Walmart um, idea that you mentioned. Have they started implementing this yeah. and started yeah. doing, putting charging stations? Yeah. They have.
1: Yeah, they, they just began. And Walmart is actually the fastest adopter of, of solar energy of any business in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. They have all these flat roofs on their stores. Mm-hmm. Their stores use a lot of energy. They have lots of capital, so they can afford an investment that pays, I mean, the solar array will pay off in somewhere between five and ten years. And uh, in their case, it might even be faster because they, you know, if you go to their stores, they're, they're all lit up and there's lots of use of energy. And so it makes perfect sense for them to do it. They don't need, you know, fields of, you know, virgin land to put it on. They just put it on their roofs. Mm-hmm. I think we're also going to see it uh, as the roofs of parking lots. So. If you go to an American university outside of New York City, you know, two-thirds of the land is parking. And so, and we've seen this in some airports in in the Caribbean where they put, uh, they build structures and they just put the solar cells on top of it and then you park underneath. And so that is a pretty inexpensive uh, and efficient use of land.
0: Mm. I see. I think that makes a lot of sense for Walmart and to a large extent, you know, the United States and China where they can have these technologies and these infrastructures. But what about more fossil fuel dependent countries? How do you see them transitioning to a more sustainable model? And what do you see are the major challenges and how do they yeah. overcome that?
1: It's going to be a challenge uh, because of the need for capital. And capital is in competition. So, uh, you know, and the other thing is uh, the fossil fuel uh, Infrastructure will be uh, provided much cheaper for them, and so some are going to use it. But then there'll be others that will leapfrog. I mean, if you don't have an electrical grid right now, uh, solar might be a pretty inexpensive way to get started, and microgrids, as opposed to uh, you know a, a single uh, a single grid, uh, might be the approach. But I do think in the developing world there is a different set of challenges, and they're principally around capital. Uh, And I think the, uh, you know, in in China, I think the Belt and Road Initiative was was an effort to try to help these parts of the world uh, accelerate their development. And I think that there does need to be some strategy for investment. But, uh, you know, it's, since they're not generating that many greenhouse gases now, uh, and it's gonna take a while before they do, my hope is that by the time they're ready for that development, uh, renewable energy will be so inexpensive that they uh, see no reason to go to fossil fuels.
0: I see that the technology itself will have developed so much that it would yeah. be very inexpensive for them to, well, to adopt it.
1: I mean, one of the things that's happening right now, and it's happening <laughs> with electronics in general, uh, is everything is getting smaller. Mm. Okay, so uh, right now you want to buy a home battery. Tesla sells you one for three thousand dollars and it's pretty big. But what if that battery Uh, in 10 years is $300 and is the size of your laptop, okay? So why not have one? It's cheaper than a generator, right? And uh, they're now using nanotechnology to modify solar cells. If they get smaller, they'll get cheaper. Solar arrays are pretty inefficient in converting sunlight to electricity, but they're getting better. And also they're building uh, solar uh, uh, generators or solar cells into windows which will solve the problem for apartments. Mm. So there, the, the, our ability to harness the sun for electricity is still in its infancy. Uh, and I think we're going to see lots and lots of technological innovation that will lower the price of that energy source.
0: I see. I think technological innovation is... I also it's one of the most important things in pushing, you know, this uh, greener climate, but what regulatory frameworks or business models do you think you know would accelerate the adoption of renewable energy currently here in the U.S. or in China or in the European Union or anywhere in the
1: world? Well, I, I think some public subsidies uh, to push it along. Uh, in the case of the United States, we often use uh, tax credits, tax deductions. Uh, certainly, that's one approach that can be useful. Sometimes it is. Uh, spending directly on research and development. Uh, in the United States, most of the innovations uh, that, we, that we use are actually in the Defense Department budget. So, uh, I mean, the invention of GPS was invented for uh, missiles so that when you guided them, instead of if we were going to shoot one into Moscow, that we didn't want it to hit Paris. And so we developed GPS, but you needed satellites to, to do that. So satellites were, you know, were part of that. Uh, the internet itself was originally a Defense Department project to share computing data among some uh, US laboratories. And suddenly, somebody thought, boy, this has some commercial potential, which it certainly has. So uh, one of the places where we're seeing a lot of innovation in the United States, and this is often where it happens, is in the military. So when the U.S. was fighting in Iraq, one of the things that uh, we found was that uh, you know it takes a lot of fuel to power an army. And uh, one of the great targets for roadside bombs would be uh, tanker cars with gasoline. So many, uh, military post had solar cells and solar energy because uh, you couldn't blow it up. So, you know, I mean, it's a kind of perverted logic, but it is the way the world works. And so uh, one of the things governments can do is spend money on the basic and applied research. um, and And then at a certain point, turn those innovations over to the commercial sector to monetize it. Government is pretty good at funding basic research. It's pretty bad at monetizing innovation, and so that's where the private sector has to come in and and handle that. Mm,
0: I see, I see. I I think that makes a lot of sense. And as you said, a lot of the current innovations we have are based off of government research, whether that's in the military sector or national laboratory funded.
1: Right, or universities. I mean, most of uh, the research at Columbia University is funded by the U.S. federal government, whether it's the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, uh, most medical research is funded by the federal government in the United States. And so, and tremendous innovations come about with sustained innovations like, uh, sustained uh, funding like that. Um, so I think more of that would be helpful in this area. It's, uh, we're seeing some of that. Uh, I think the the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, the infrastructure uh, bill that was passed a couple of years ago, all have had uh, a positive effect on, you know, putting in some federal resources. And then when you put the federal resources in, very often you'll see private funds follow.
0: In this episode, Professor Cohen contemplates upon the conservative factions, namely those advocating for fossil fuels, may undergo transformation within the next five to 10 years due to the increased affordability of sustainable energy sources. Cohen additionally examines the dynamic relationship between policy initiatives and climate-centric endeavors, such as the implementation of electrical vehicles and the establishment of charging infrastructure. In the foreseeable future, the objective is for renewable energy to become sufficiently cost-effective, thereby rendering fossil fuels obsolete in the eyes of the public. I am your host, Charlie Du, and thank you for listening to another episode of the World Salon Podcast. Exploring major issues in worldwide development through conversations with leading experts. Please subscribe for more insightful dialogues and analysis. Thank you for listening.